Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't. But we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. She's great. She's really good. And no nonsense type of person. <laughs> NSL Double Talk featuring Anna Krieger and Dr. Erica Cargill-Jones. Their topic today is sleep and diet, lifestyle changes that make a difference. Dr. Krieger is a clinician scientist and the medical director of the Weill Cornell Center for Sleep Medicine. She's an associate professor in the departments of medicine, neurology, and genetic medicine, as well as an associate attending. Dr. Cargill-Jones is also an associate professor of clinical medicine at the New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medical Center. She is on the senior list of physicians who are recognized for their teaching efforts for the medical students. She's board certified in internal medicine and cardiology. We are so excited to welcome Dr. Krieger and Dr. Cargill-Jones to NSL Double Talk. Hi, Anna. How are you today? Great. Thank you. How are you, Erica? Very well, thanks. It's kind of fun for us to sit and talk about sleep and cardiovascular health and what's going on these days with risk. Why are you so interested in sleep medicine? What got you there? My first exposure to sleep medicine was just before medical school, over 30 years ago. I was a research assistant of my brother's, and he was doing research in sleep apnea. And it took me about 20 years to get back into understanding the true importance of sleep apnea. When I was in training in intensive care medicine, we always realized that when you're on call, there are a lot of things that were happening that during, during the daytime you explained to the to the responsible doctor or to the family that was coming up to visit the patients, how sick they were during the night. And people would say, but they look fine now during the daytime. And that's when I realized we knew very little about what went on with the body over those eight hours or so of sleep. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, it's funny because I almost see it from the opposite in a way, having run the cardiology fellowship in that I'm seeing what sleep deprivation through the night does to someone during the day in how they're unable to concentrate and um, how more mistakes are made when people are really sleep deprived. And as a cardiologist, I also um, have gotten really interested in how sleep deprivation is actually increasing cardiovascular risk, you know, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, which I think you can talk about a lot more than I can, and obesity and adding to it. It's not just that obese people have sleep apnea. I think that when you're not sleeping well, dietary habits change, the obesity gets worse. I think it becomes this vicious cycle. Are you seeing that? Over the past two decades, we've seen the average body mass index, which is a measure of how heavy people are for their height, has really gone up dramatically. And that has led to an epidemic of at least sleep apnea. But on top of that, I completely agree, sleep deprivation has become a major problem. We see people that are working many jobs and they bring in now electronics to the house and they have access to work 24 hours a day. So that has also led to a lot of metabolic problems because we are understanding that if people don't sleep well, their metabolism is probably not going to be adequate. And it can lead to a lot of food craving and further weight gain and more sleep issues. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm seeing that a lot in my practice. 
I'm, I'm sort of intrigued also. A lot of people ask me about the issues with devices, phones, devices, light at night, blue light, yellow light, orange light, you know, you name it, there's like all these things. What are, what's your thought on that? As a cardiologist, I don't think of it as much, but as a sleep specialist, I'm sure you get that question a lot. We do, and we are learning that the circadian rhythm is this 24-hour rhythm that regulates our day-to-day hormonal balance in the body, and we can't fight it. So part of our typical approach to patients is always, even when patients come in for a different reason on the consultation, I always discuss what are their habits at night, what is their typical sleep schedule, how much do they use electronics before going to sleep. So the timing of that exposure, if it is during the day, is probably not going to be harmful, but if it is really at night, it can really damage the regulation of your sleep cycle. I'm absolutely certain that the youngsters, certainly in my house, are not thinking of that. And so that's something that I'm focusing more and more on is trying to turn off the devices at night and and even just sleep hygiene in a way of, um, you know, making sure that the bed is for sleep and that it you're getting, you know, the seven to eight hours. I, I think a lot of people believe that six hours is enough. There was some interesting data. I read that um, the average North American sleeps about an hour less than they did 100 years ago. 100 years ago isn't that long. So, you know, this few generations has really changed our sleep pattern. And I sort of think to myself, when I wake up without an alarm, I often sleep about an hour more than I would have. So it makes me think, okay, I'm probably about an hour sleep deprived also. And I also think alcohol is a big problem at night. Um, Alcohol tends to allow my patients and myself and everyone, I think, to fall asleep easier. But then you wake up at three in the morning um, and that's when the anxiety starts. And I think that it just becomes a vicious cycle. So a lot of what I talk to about my patients is trying to get in that exercise not too late in the day, but make sure you do something aerobic not eating or drinking too close to bedtime, certainly no alcohol within two hours of sleeping, and aiming for eight hours. And therefore, if you get seven, that's probably enough for most people. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think those are very important points you brought up. When people ask me, how much sleep do I actually need? My answer is typically, I don't know, because everybody does have a bit of a different need. And also the need changes in different life stages and different illnesses. Let's say when people are sick, they may need to sleep for longer periods of time. But if people are able to follow a regular schedule and wake up without an alarm, they probably are getting enough sleep. And that typically would be a range between six and nine hours. So I'm not so harsh at recommending a specific amount. I just say when you're on vacation, when you really have time off, that you don't really need to follow anyone else's schedule, what is your default to sleep? Of course, not immediately because we're all sleep deprived. So in the first couple of days, people may be oversleeping to trying to catch up. But eventually, if they have enough days off, what would be their default schedule and how much sleep would they need? Because as you pointed out, a very small percentage of the population can really cope with six hours or less. It's estimated less than one in a thousand people can actually cope well with this in order to function well. And at the same time, we have people on the other end of the spectrum. We have people that need 10 or 11 hours of sleep. And that's their true need. It's not necessarily a disease. They are longer sleepers than the general population. 
because the genetics works both ways, right? The same way we have enough short sleepers, we have enough long sleepers out there. But we don't pay enough attention to that. And going back to an earlier point that you mentioned that I found was so important is really back into the youngsters and kids in school and in college. I think we're doing a lot of harm and we need to go back and really evaluate the system because we're forcing kids to use electronics. So many times I have patients that bring in their children and they say, we don't have an option. You know, my kid needs to do work on a computer. And most of the work assignments are due at 11 p.m. or midnight that same day. To me, I, it's inconceivable why are we doing this. The deadline should be at 8 a.m., 10 a.m. the next day. Because why are we keeping on pushing their bedtime and now exposing them to blue lights in a, a brain that is very young and could be really harmed by this? So I think there's a lot of opportunities in there for public policy to try to improve the health of our future adults so they can learn about the importance of sleep. Oh, know? I I couldn't agree more. And I have I've joked with my children that everyone sort of seems to agree that the amount of time we are on devices is not good for us. And yet the schools make the children dependent on them. So I agree with you. I think that that's something that we're going to have to address. And it's, you see it just as we go, you know, you and I both are probably completely attached to our phones and our devices late at night. Absolutely. And the other point I think you you raised earlier that was very important is really our exposure. So in terms of our routine, our exposure to alcohol, to caffeine and to stimulants, dark chocolate, anything people use in order to function well and then try to off-cycle that and try to sleep better. We have to be very careful because those are all chemicals and they affect our function. And they will stay over in the system. Let's say when people have caffeine in the afternoon, it will stay over in the system and it can affect the sleep. And with alcohol, it's interesting to see how many patients over time have decreased their alcohol intake because it may be perceived as a sedative, and it is. But once it gets metabolized, it ruins the sleep. And we can actually see when we monitor those patients at night, you can see we call that sleep state instability. They are in and out of sleep. They cannot sustain adequate sleep on the second half of the night. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I I feel like the the vicious cycle also with anxiety and depression, at least in my practice, is so linked to sleep deprivation. And one of the things I, I, I frequently talk about with my patients, and we try to get to the bottom of why they're not sleeping. I agree that apnea and obesity are a problem. And if someone has undiagnosed sleep apnea, that should absolutely be diagnosed and treated. But the problem I'm finding also is is that especially when people are able to fall asleep but then wake up and then, as we say, you know, everything is tragic at three in the morning and you wake up and then it becomes this horrible, vicious cycle of thinking that everything through the day has been tragic and then I know my patients can't get back to sleep and so I'm trying desperately not to prescribe sleep aids if I don't have to. So I'd be interested in your thoughts in that also and you know, a lot of questions about natural sleep aids and melatonin and valerian root and all these things versus a small dose of something like a Valium, you know, to help someone sleep because it's anxiety. And what are your thoughts on that? Very important issues. I think we have a lot of misperceptions about sleep. You know, we think sleep is flexible. We can pick our schedule. We think that we can actually maybe dispose of sleep, you know, and try to get an early flight or a late meeting. So we have to be very mindful that 
the body functions in a regular cycle, if you take cells from your skin and from your liver, they all follow a rhythm. So I think the best way for us to reinforce our sleep, you know, for ourselves, our patients, our families, is really looking into what can we do to reinforce the rhythm. First, we want to identify where is the best and ideal sleep rhythm. Some people are night owls and as a natural rhythm. So for those people to be able to reinforce a regular sleep schedule can be difficult. So they may need to look how can they accommodate their day towards that. But for most of us that were not either on the extremes or of an early bird, of a night owl, I think it's important to try to create a routine before going to bed and make sure to sleep is part of your schedule. There's a publication not too long ago that mentioned that only about 10% of people have sleep on their schedule. As they plan their day, they know I'm not going to schedule anything because that's the time I'm supposed to be asleep. And it's pretty important when you look into that for us to pay a little more attention to this because that will allow the natural process to take place because sleep is not a switch. You can't just like leave the room and shut off the lights. Sometimes I say, you know, sleep is more like an old Windows computer. You know, you task it to shut down. It will shut down at its own time. It will happen, right? But I mean, it may take a little while. Because there's several chemical processes that need to take place. So typically when I mention to patients to reinforce their sleep will be just try to establish what is their sleep schedule, what time they really want to fall asleep and wake up. But then prior to falling asleep, creating a quiet environment, perhaps a soothing music. And now there's a lot of data showing that different sounds can actually stimulate sleep. What people can do in their own environment is just to keep soothing music, a relaxing environment, not a lot of aggravating phone calls, not a lot of electronics, not a lot of financial stressors. Supplements or over-the-counter medications, I think, can be very helpful. There are some important uses for that. One is when there is an acute change and people have acute insomnia. I believe that we need to figure out how to treat that quickly because otherwise people will learn what we call perpetuating factors. So we have precipitating factors for insomnia and then we have perpetuating factors. The majority of patients we see, they have this perpetuating behavioral factor. So we need to then take a more time to try to go back and dig in. Are they getting up and checking their device? Are they checking the clock and see what time it is in the middle of the night? So try to attenuate all of those behaviors that may be affecting sleep. I, I'm a good fan of melatonin, I have to say. I think we have, we're exposed to a lot of artificial lights so that we know a lot of light exposure blocks your intrinsic melatonin release and blocks melatonin from working. So melatonin can be used very helpfully. The drawback is that sometimes we don't know what is available over the counter if they really have what they state because it's really not regulated. Sometimes medications could be as safe or even safer than over-the-counters, perhaps, because sometimes we know better what it is on a pharmaceutical than what it is over-the-counter. I have that same issue often with things that patients can buy over-the-counter for cholesterol control. It's a little bit tough for me to know exactly what's in it. So I think you do have to trust your source in a way also. Absolutely. I think the other factor that is important for us to pay a little more attention to is, as you pointed out, is this stressful life and busy lives that people take and everything seems drastic in the middle of the night, like the world's about to end. And to me, that always points out to a factor that people leave their day without a break. And when they go to bed, suddenly all those things that either creativity takes place and or to-do lists or things that they haven't done personally, 
they really become a bit of a crisis. So often I recommend for on that quiet time after lunch for people to take about 10 minutes, even if they have less, five minutes, to just go into their, I call it the worry list, but the daytime worry list, just to write down are their life dreams or worries or concerns, things in life sometimes that you can't even change, but to allocate a few minutes because that, Time after lunch is typically close to that siesta time that, of course, none of us have nowadays. Mm. I never really thought of it that way. That's actually an interesting point. I think the other thing that I struggle with with a lot of my patients, women, obviously, um, is dealing with sleep and menopause. And this feeling and thought and presumption that the sleep disturbance is hormonal. I first of all tell my perimenopausal women not to be afraid of a tiny dose of estrogen if they need it. If they're having terrible night sweats, mood swings, sexual dysfunction, absolutely speak to you know both me and the gynecologist and we will find uh, a dose that works for you. But then I found though that that doesn't always change how they're sleeping. And they're very disappointed with that, that this was going to be the, you know, the panacea to fix their sleep. And it doesn't always do that. I still think that the estrogen replacement can help in many ways symptomatically. And once again, I I stress to people, a sense of well-being is as important for your cardiovascular health as anything, getting the sleep, getting the exercise, feeling well, being happy, feeling fulfilled. So I don't want people to be afraid, but I also don't want women to think it's going to cure their sleep. What's Have you found that or what is your thought on that? Because I, I worry that everybody thinks that hormone replacement is going to fix everything. I completely agree. <laughs> and unfortunately, it doesn't most of the time, right? And I think we need to embrace that in a way that perhaps there are changes that need to be made in order to offset the changes in the hormones, as you mentioned, exercise, watch your diet, decrease alcohol. So all the things that are under our control, I think are often the best initial approach to manage sleep issues that may occur during menopause. It's not necessarily true, right, that people that go through menopause would have sleep problems. Uh, We have so many patients that go through and they don't even notice. So we have to be very careful and approach this in a more holistic way and looking for approaches that relate to behavioral changes and changing in diet or, of course, weight management sometimes. Because as we go through menopause, I think one factor that happens in women is that we know that by changing the hormones increases our risk for developing cardiovascular disease, right? Absolutely. And sleep apnea as well. And sometimes sleep apnea could be present in women and they are not aware. So there's no other symptom. They may just say the sleep may be fragmented. They are tired during the day. So sometimes we need to just go ahead and test them to double check and make sure sleep apnea is not present. Because there's a lot of data showing that for the first 10 years of menopause that are on hormone replacement versus women that are not, people, women that are not on hormone replacement actually have higher risk or higher prevalence of sleep apnea. So there is some attenuating factor in case there are other reasons, I guess, for women to be on hormone replacement. I think that would be beneficial because they would have less sleep apnea. But I wouldn't prophylactically treat them and say, yes, take hormones so that it would prevent your risk for having a sleep apnea. Because there are also many concerns about the appropriate use of hormone replacement. It should always be discussed, as you said, with cardiology, with gynecology. 
to make sure the person is really a good candidate for this. Yeah, I work actually a lot with my gynecology colleagues um, to find the right dose. And, and I don't want to leave the poor men out of this conversation. I'm absolutely certain that as men age also, the, the sleep just becomes more fragmented and it's just more and more important to get on that schedule. And, and the other thing that I think is a good time to bring it up is, is that in working with medical trainees, the residents and the fellows and sleep deprivation, um, is this concept of strategic napping. So they've actually brought in a concept in trainees who are working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week when you have a 16-hour day, is to schedule a 20-minute nap in the mid-afternoon, not too late, but in the mid-afternoon, and also to not sleep for too long. So what are your thoughts on that? It's like apparently not to get into a REM sleep, but just to sort of refresh yeah, so it's a little bit of a mini siesta, let's mm-hmm. say. So I don't see any downsides of doing this. Um, unless, you know, you might have people that have much longer sleep needs. They may just feel that if they start sleeping for 20 minutes, they can't really wake up. Mm. Sometimes if they sleep longer, and that's the reason why we tend to limit, is a phenomenon that we call sleep inertia, that it takes them a while to get going after they wake up. And... Ideally, you don't want them to sleep beyond 20 minutes just because it gets into deeper stages of sleep, either delta sleep or even REM sleep cycles. In REM sleep cycle, it's a a stage of sleep that is actually fascinating because the brain is super active, is reallocating memories, building new networks, so the neurons are communicating and pruning. But in order to do that, it releases hormones that paralyze us. So during that stage of sleep, you really, you can't, your muscles can't move. So when people suddenly wake up, let's say if you have a nap that is a little too long and then an alarm or if another person comes and wakes uh, this individual, and if they get out of REM sleep, they may not really be able to move. And that's what people call sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. So when people are sleep deprived, we see that happening when they are trying to catch up with sleep or sometimes even when they nap. But overall, I think it is a good approach. I think when you deal with people that are sleep deprived, you need to allow them a mechanism to catch up with sleep. In years past, we really didn't know if catching up on sleep was actually healthy. And now research is showing us that even when people catch up on the weekends, it's better than not catching up. Oh, so you do recommend, so if you were, you know, five, six hours during the week, go ahead and sleep seven or eight nine on a weekend. On the weekends. And what about allowing your teenager and 20-somethings to sleep till noon? Through research, we know that catching up is good, but I worry exactly about the same idea because as you pointed out, the jet lag situation is almost like they are moving to a different country, right, over the weekend. So we have to be very careful because particularly when that happens into a Saturday, into Sunday, and then they need to be at work early on Monday. That becomes a challenge. So often what I recommend is I create this very simple spreadsheet. So on the columns, you have the different hours of the day. And I say, just try to line this up as much as possible when you go to bed and when you wake up. Because the idea on the weekend is that people are catching up for sleep that they lost during the week. But did they really need to lose all that sleep? They could have had an extra half an hour of sleep every day. It's like, well, if they did that, they wouldn't have to catch up as much on the weekends. So I think a little bit more of discipline about our bedtime routine would be very important as well. Yeah, I agree. And I also encourage my patients to try not to vigorously exercise too late at night. I think that really revs people up. I would think some meditation or yoga or something very mellow at night 
could be helpful, but not to go out and do, you know, some sort of insanity class at eight o'clock at night, because I really do think that that revs them up. So I've just tried to switch people's day a little bit, although that's, it's difficult. Some people have to be at work very early. And then the other thing that I really recommend, especially in some of these larger corporations that have a gym right on the premises is go get your workout in during the day. Everybody needs a little break during the day and no one is going to blame you for catching a half hour of exercise at one or two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, And yet I I feel like sometimes there's this reluctance to ever leave their desk, which is really quite dangerous. And so I'm really encouraging people to just get out there and exercise even before they get home. And it's definitely helped a lot of my patients. I agree. I love those recommendations because what we are seeing is this this lack of sleep leads to decreasing productivity at work. So people may be on their desks, but really not being as productive as they should or as they could. So I agree on getting them to try to exercise. Or even sometimes they say, you know, just after lunch, if you can, just go outside, get some bright sunlight exposure for 10, 15 minutes. That will kind of refresh you a little bit and then you can come back to your desk. Because again, knowing that everybody has a deep in alertness after lunchtime, that'll be a perfect time for you to either go exercise or go outside for a walk. Because we have to be very careful and respect how our system was designed to function. Some people know a little bit, but not enough about how sleep functions and they feel that they can re-engineer sleep and they can re-engineer physiological processes and it doesn't work very well on this. So avoiding that late exercise, it's so important. I've seen so many cases of people that are triathletes and their sleep is terrible sometimes and they're in the best physical shape of their lives, but they cannot keep a good sleep routine because they push their exercise routine until so late in the day that then the body releases a lot of feel-good hormones that really are going to be excitatory. And that's the time of the day that you want the brain to start releasing sleepy type of hormones. That's so interesting. What do you actually think is the biggest misconception about sleep? Well, I think it's that we have control over it. Um, I think people worry. They think that they worry about sleep and that's going to help them sleep. And that's to me is just always a no. One of the first things I say when I speak about insomnia is to say, you have to stop worrying about sleep. You need to plan. So you have a plan how you're going to wind down mm-hmm. and all. But if you start consciously worrying about sleep, it's just another light bulb that goes up in the brain and is another need for you to be alert. So we need to give out control to be able to let go and just allow sleep to take place and that's why it's a bit of a unusual approach where we could, and people have done in the past, give medications to put people to sleep and give medications for people to wake up. But that's really not the natural design of our body. And I think the closer we get to nature, the better our body will work. Now, I've definitely had a, a lot of discussion with my patients about just taking medication to kind of schlog you at night, you know, and put you right out to sleep. And then you're right. And then you need caffeine to wake you up in the morning. And, and it becomes obsessive. It's all they think about is how to sleep and then how to wake up. And if we can just sort of get out of that vicious cycle and allow your own sleep, that's an interesting to stop worrying about it. And I have found um, biofeedback and meditative techniques definitely help, you know, the funny counting sheep thing. Well, what is counting sheep? Counting sheep is meditative. It's just trying to take your brain off of whatever else you were thinking about. And so you just have to do something very repetitive. And before you know it, you actually fall asleep. And so even 
even simple techniques, but I think there's also no perfect answer. Everybody's different in what's going to help them sleep. And like you said, not everyone is bothered by hormones. Not everyone is bothered by even exercising at night. And so it's so individual that I've had trouble giving blanket recommendations on how to get people to sleep. Right. And also need to learn how to accept that sometimes we may have a bad night of sleep. Mm-hmm. It happens to all of us. Like nobody will sleep perfectly every night. If you have an early flight the next day, yes, your brain is going to be preoccupied with that. It's not, don't expect to be, have a, a perfect night of sleep that night. So sometimes I think having different expectations about sleep can be very helpful. And as you pointed out, relaxation, meditative practices can be very, very helpful too. One thing I recommend often is for patients, if they wake up in the middle of the night, not to even think about sleep. I just I prohibit them from thinking about sleep. Do not allow your mind to go there. Don't talk to people also during the day about their sleep problems because sometimes people go on and on about how bad their sleep is. And that kind of helps perpetuate it. But what I typically say is they can do some more deep, more relaxation type of breathings that actually increases the parasympathetic, which is the antidote for adrenaline in the body. And often I tell patients to just take a deep breath, take four seconds, let's say for a deep breath, then hold their breath for several seconds and then breathe out, but breathe out intentionally, gently, but through their mouths for a longer period of time. But I recommend this when they are in bed. I say, don't do this and then get up and use the bathroom, get a sip of water, because that can actually slow the heart rate significantly and it will get your feedback as a cardiologist on that. So typically I say do about three of those cycles and the response is not necessarily immediate, but over the next few minutes, you're going to see that people will be able to fall back asleep much more easily. Yes, uh, I totally agree. And uh, they're almost biofeedback sort of mechanisms. I'm a firm believer in meditation and biofeedback, but I agree you with there's actually data in um, meditators that it lowers the blood pressure and the heart rate, the heart rate significantly um, and the respiratory rate. And it really does put you into a very mellow state. Although interestingly, um, when I meditate, um, I happen to do transcendental meditation. Um, I actually don't do it right before I go to bed because after I've meditated, I, it actually gives me good energy. So I try and recommend to my patients, um, don't do a specific form of meditation that's going to help you wake up later um, so close to bed, but more of just, like you said, the counting techniques can be really, really helpful. And personally, they've been incredibly helpful for me. And sometimes this conversation with my patients really comes from personal struggles. We all have them. We, Like you said, you know, everybody has struggles with sleep at, at one time in their life. Um, and I think it has to do with stress in your life and stress with your children. And I know college applications were not an easy time for our household, you know, things like that. So it just depends on what the stress is at the time of, of your life. And they ebb and flow and not to... I guess, obsess over it uh, and work holistically to the best of our ability um, because I do think that the certainly the prescribed medications um, are not the answer to everything. Right, to the point. Absolutely. I think going back to the transcendental meditation, I think that's a very important point because I think many meditative techniques could be used at bedtime, but definitely not transcendental meditation because even when people fall asleep, after meditating, they would wake up often. So I think that's what they actually instruct people to do. I think 
one interesting approach that sometimes I try to get people to do is just more gentle stretchings and even sitting in the dark. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say, well, I can't do anything because I work and I get home 11, 11.30 at night and I need to be up at five the next day. And I tell them to come home and just sit quiet in a chair, just sit in the dark before mm -hmm. making to your bedroom even. Close your eyes, just kind of let go of that stress of the moment because we need to feel comfortable with that change in pace and know that, again, we have no control. It's not our will that will get us to sleep. Our will will get us to do everything during the daytime, but really not will get us to sleep. So I find that very helpful. And on the opposite end, also, I tell people to be very careful, again, with light exposures, because often part of our nighttime routine is in the bathroom. And frequently the bathroom is a super bright and well-lit environment. So often I recommend if it's too well-lit, you need to add a dimmer. You need to figure out how to use your bathroom with very low light at night, particularly if you're going to go to bed later than usual to do your bedtime routine and brush and all. Uh, so we have to be very mindful of everything that is surrounding us in terms of exposures or environmental stressors. What about in people for the commuters, especially, say, on a train, who fall asleep on the train? Do you think that's actually adding to sleep issues? You know, you get that, say, half an hour, but kind of late, you know, maybe 5.30, 6.37 at night. I worry a little bit that that may throw the sleep pattern off, like falling asleep in front of the TV at night. Excellent point. Absolutely. Because if it is too late, I, I would worry. If it's not, I would say if it's before seven o'clock, I wouldn't be so worried. Uh, after that, I think it can affect their sleep. But sometimes that adds up to their sleep period. So it could be that people say, listen, they do not have insomnia. They don't have any difficulty falling asleep. They optimize their nighttime sleep. So now you add that commuter 20, 30 minutes sleep sometimes to the equation. I have a patient that he has a long commute in the morning to the city. It's about a two-hour commute, and he comes by bus, and he knows he has one hour of solid sleep. So that's part of his routine. The other hour, he works. But he knows he can sleep exactly. that hour. That's exactly. Cool. So he optimizes his routine, and he's totally comfortable with that. So I think it can be built in into the routine. Well, listen, this has been a, certainly very educational for me, and I know I'm always talking to my patients about the benefits of sleep and healthy living. So, Anna, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.